Merry Christmas, everybody. Glad you're all with us. I got to start off with a really cool story. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, I knew we were going to do the series that we're going to do right now, and I was working with Daniel Zumini on the graphic that you see behind me. And uh, Danielle sent out a, a group text message to a, a group of uh, musicians and some of us, and it talked about uh, the new Christmas song that we were going to sing called Manger Throne. And then uh, uh, Tina, who did all of the, Tina Berry, who did all the decorations with her team, of course, uh, wrote back and said that there was a manger involved in uh, our new decorations for this Christmas season. And I thought, well, the Lord knew he was doing something, right? We got a theme with the manger and the manger and the manger throne. And then I came to church this morning and I had been uh, like familiar with the manger throne song and obviously some of these other songs that we're singing that we only sing at Christmas time. And I sat over there at the first service with my message on my mind and knowing what we were kind of going to see with that video that we uh, picked out this week and it just all fit together perfectly. God just has a way of doing that kind of stuff. Just putting all these pieces together to help us to understand something of this message that he wants us to get. And so we're going to spend the next four weeks doing something a little bit different uh, than maybe we have done at other times uh, during the Christmas season where we would look at maybe Luke's gospel and what Luke has to say about the Christmas narrative or Matthew, the first two chapters of Matthew and what that says or maybe uh, some of the New Testament characters around Christmas. We're going to look at Isaiah chapter 9. If you have your Bibles, Isaiah chapter 9. And what you can actually do is you could take a bookmark, or if you have one of these Bibles with the, with the bookmarks in them, you could take that and, and put it right there, because we're going to be there for the next four Sundays. You don't even have to like flip around and figure out where I'm talking about and where you need to go, because we're going to be there for each of the next uh, four Sundays. One of the guys in the first service, before the first service, came up and said, only one verse today? I said, no, only one verse for the next month. That doesn't mean you're going to get out early. I just want to tell you that right up front. Some of you are like, oh, sweet. No, not really. We're going to do a thematic study, which again is a little bit different than what I would regularly do or I would go verse by verse through a passage of Scripture. This thematic study in Isaiah chapter 9, uh, verse 6, we see four titles that are given to um, what Isaiah is prophesying was a, a future Messiah. And when he says, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, these are four designations. And so what we're going to do is each Sunday we're going to take one of those. I'll explain a little bit about what that designation meant in the Old Testament times. And then we'll look at the New Testament to see how Jesus actually fulfilled that. So we get started today. I want to set the scene a little bit. I don't know about you, but for, for me and for our family, Christmas is in full swing. Right after Thanksgiving, my wife's birthday, uh, we celebrated that last Sunday, and then we were gone for a couple days, and you get back and you're right into the full swing of everything Christmas, right? And Christmas is a lot of fun and a lot of excitement and a lot of energy, and Grandma Kay is coming out next Saturday, and we're pumped and excited about it, and Christmas gets really busy. Does Christmas get busy for you? Like a little bit busy? A lot busy? Crazy busy, Right? And I heard a pastor uh, say recently that what people don't need at Christmas is one more thing to do, right? You don't need one more thing to do to be a good Christian at Christmas. What I want to do with this series, as opposed to giving you something else to do, another thing to add to your task list, another thing that you need to check off each week, and you know, another way that we can be good Christians at Christmas, is I want to show us what God has done for us already in the person of Jesus Christ especially as it pertains to what we see in Isaiah 9. Now, 
couple of things that we want to understand so that we know what we're doing. We don't want to just jump into somewhere and grab one verse and pull it out and just kind of talk about it, right? So I give you some thoughts and some ideas related to what's going on. There is something called messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. You're familiar with the fact that the, that the Old Testament was written well before the New Testament. And when we're talking specifically about Isaiah, as the video already uh, showed you, we're talking about something that was written roughly 700 years before the time that Jesus would show up. And I want you to make sure you understand that, that distinction. Because what happens throughout the Old Testament are, is that there are what's called messianic prophecies. And so God, through his prophets in the Old Testament, was telling specific things about one who was to come that was going to be the Messiah or the Savior of his people. And God's people then in the Old Testament and in what was called the intertestamental period and then into the time of Jesus that we read about in the Gospels, they had a messianic expectation. There were these things that they were expecting that one was going to come and was going to do certain things and provide certain things and, and bring them certain freedoms. And, and that was called their messianic expectation. Now, what's really important for us as Christians is that the number of those prophecies in the Old Testament. Some people would say that, that there are over or roughly 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that are then fulfilled in the person and the work of Jesus. In other words, and, and there are huge lists of these online if you want to look at them, and they're, they're mesmerizing. But specific prophecies, as somebody in the Old Testament gave a prophecy, that one of the prophets of God in the Old Testament prophesied about a coming Messiah, and that Jesus in his birth, and his life, and his death, and his resurrection, and then ultimately at the end of all things, will fulfill those prophecies. There are at least a dozen that are specifically related, specifically related to the birth of Christ. You could go back to the Old Testament, and you can look at it, it will tell you in, in the Old Testament prophets specific things about where he would be born, when he would be born, who would show up around the time of his birth, what the conditions would be when he came, who would come before him. And all of these things are prophesied ahead of time, hundreds of years ahead of time. And then when Jesus comes, they're all, all of these are fulfilled in the person and the work of Jesus. And why that is important is because that is a great apologetic, a great defense of the Christian faith. It's also a great anchor for Christian hope. That when we talk about Jesus and the manger and you put up your manger scene and all of those things, that this is not just an idea that some guy came up with somewhere a couple thousand years ago. That it wasn't just a good man or a good teacher that showed up and then people immortalized him and it took off because there was a, an emperor about 300 years later that decided to make a big deal out of it. That's what the secular world will tell you, but that's not what's true that there are hundreds of prophecies about Jesus, about the Messiah, that were then fulfilled in Jesus. I'll give you just two that pertain to where we're at in our study right now. Uh, the first one will be very familiar to you, and it was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, and then Matthew is where it comes to fulfillment. Isaiah seven fourteen. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgins shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God with us, right? Matthew chapter 1, 22 and 23, after Matthew delineates and talks about the birth of Jesus, the birth narrative, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah, 
Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. A prophecy made 700 years before Jesus, fulfilled specifically in Jesus. And that whole virgin having a baby thing, that's unique, by the way, right? That was meant to show, among other things, that this is different, something very different is going on. And as a matter of fact, Jesus had a cousin. You remember him? John? John the Baptist, and his birth in Luke is told right alongside Jesus' birth, and they're told that they were both miraculous, but Jesus' was more, like, very different, right? That John's mom and dad got together, and even though they were old, they had a baby. Jesus was born differently, and those two are meant to show something there. There's another prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9, and, and this is, again, some context for us looking at Isaiah 9, 6. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And I'll tell you this, as we get into the text where we're going to be today, the the historical context of Isaiah chapter 9 is one of deep darkness for the people of God. If you read Isaiah chapter 8, just one page back in many of your Bibles, it tells you about the historical context. 2 Kings 16 and 17 is the parallel passage, and you can see where God's people were at that time. And it was a time of gloom and doom, a time of deep darkness, because God's people had turned away from God, had been unfaithful, and there was a nation called Assyria, the great power of that day before the nations of Babylon or Greek or Rome or those nations, there was the nation of Assyria. And they were going to come in and they were going to take over and conquer the people of God. And in part, that was God's discipline on his people. And so the context of Isaiah 9 is this period of gloom and darkness. But look what Matthew has to say about how this prophecy gets fulfilled. In Matthew chapter 4, right at the beginning of Jesus' public adult ministry, And you can read down through there, leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, this is Jesus, uh, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All of those go into showing us that Jesus is, in fact, the one who fulfills this great prophecy. It also shows us the context of the verse that we're going to read in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. That there was darkness and that there was despair. And that Isaiah prophesied through the person that God sent Isaiah a prophecy. And Isaiah prophesied, and he prophesied hope. And Isaiah 9, 6 You can see it behind me. You can look in your own copies of God's word. Isaiah 9, 6 says, For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. What Isaiah was saying is that hope was coming in a person. Hope was coming in a person. But here's the interesting part. I talked to you about that messianic expectation that people in Isaiah's day had, and then people all the way through, and even Orthodox Jews today still have, still waiting the Messiah to come. 
That messianic expectation did not look like a little baby who came in a manger. That messianic expectation was a great warrior king he was going to rule and reign. We sang the song, Manger Throne, and one of the verses in there says he could have just come into Rome, shown all his glory and splendor. Rome was the power of the, of the day at the time when Jesus came. And he could have just come in and, and shown all of his glory and all of his splendor and all of his power. But God had a better plan. The reason that people thought the way that they did was because they heard and read prophecies like Isaiah. Look at Isaiah 9, verse 3. You have multiplied the nation and have increased its joy. They rejoice before you with joy at the harvest. They are glad when they divide the spoil. The yoke of his burden and the staff for, for his shoulder, the rod of his, pressure, of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. They thought that the Messiah was coming as this warrior king that was going to set them free from all of their oppression. They had a wrong expectation of Jesus, of the Messiah. Do you know that sometimes we have a wrong expectation of who Jesus is as well? Right? We think Jesus is coming to save us from all of our problems and give us freedom from all of our things. And sometimes God has a far better plan than just getting me out of the little things that I need. Right? And so into that we hear of a wonderful counselor. And that's what we'll unpack today for the next few minutes. We'll unpack this idea of, of what the wonderful counselor means and what that looks like and how Jesus fulfilled that. Now, some of your translations, if you're reading, uh, especially older translations, it, it may read like this, wonderful, comma, counselor, comma, mighty God, everlasting Father. So, so wonderful and counselor are separated. Probably the best way to translate the Hebrew here is a wonder of a counselor. Okay? It's one idea, and it's going to be important, and I'll break the words apart and help you see what they mean, but that we understand this all as one. Here's where this gets tricky. For most of you, if you're like me, when you think wonderful counselor, and you've heard that and seen it on Christmas cards far too many times, right? You think therapist, right? We think like Dr. Phil. We think Christian self-help book. And we have this idea that a counselor is someone like we go and we lay on the couch and they have a clipboard and they ask us questions and we tell them about all of our problems. We think, oh, wow, cool, Jesus is going to be a really good therapist, right? I'll go and I'll lay on my couch and, and Jesus will ask me lots of questions and ask me to tell about my feelings. I just love to talk to Jesus about my feelings. And he's the wonderful counselor. People use this verse like that all the time, right? And there's so much more to it than that. So let me, let me unpack it a little bit. Wonderful. The word wonderful. You've probably used the word wonderful here recently, I would be willing to imagine. Uh, how many of you ladies were here at the Christmas dinner last night? Did you have a wonderful time? It was wonderful, wasn't it? My wife came home and, and Maddie came home and they said it was wonderful. I don't know if they use the exact word. Well, I showed up here to drop Maddie off, and I didn't even come inside, really. I stepped inside the, the door real quick. But you know what? I smelled the catering. That's, you know what it smelled? It smelled wonderful. We use the wonder, word wonderful all the time. Some of you, Jason gets up here, he's like, the bathrooms are open. Oh, wonderful, right? This morning, first service, this really happened. First service, we get here, we're practicing. Those speakers, which power everything, they don't work. We don't know why. We can't figure it out. The speakers aren't working. You know what we said? Oh, wonderful. What are we going to do now? Right? 
I went to put up my Christmas lights the other day. I got all the lights out. I put them away last year. They all work. I get them out now. They don't work. Wonderful, right? We use wonderful all the time. But here's the problem. We have a real low view of wonderful, don't we? The Hebrew word, we're in the Old Testament, Isaiah. We're in the Old Testament, so that means the original language is Hebrew, right? The Hebrew word behind wonderful here means this. Now, now think about this in terms of how you use wonderful. A phenomenon lying outside the realm of human explanation, okay? When we came in this morning and those didn't work, we had no idea why. It was a phenomenon lying outside of the realm of human explanation. Like, how do they not work? They worked on Thursday. They don't work now. I would submit to you that this phenomenon that they're talking about in Isaiah is different than that phenomenon, right? My Christmas lights don't work. I I can't explain it. They worked last year. Jesus is a wonderful phenomenon that far exceeds that. But what he's getting at is it's something that you can't explain by human means. Like the human mind can't explain it and can't understand it. That word wonderful is that which is separated from the normal course of events. The normal course of human understanding. There's another place that it's used in the Old Testament, that word wonderful. And I'll give it to you with the context. You've probably seen this verse before, these verses. Psalm 139, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Here's a scary one for some of you, including myself. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You're like, oh, that's not good, right? Especially when you're putting up the Christmas lights and they don't work. You're like, I don't even have to say it and the Lord knows it. I'm in real trouble. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is to what? Too wonderful. It is high. I cannot attain it. What he's saying is that God knows things about you and about me that is beyond my comprehension. God knows the course of human history and the course of human events, yet he knows all the thoughts that you think before you think them. All the words that I'm going to say before I say them. That's pretty wonderful, right? Like my Christmas decorations are wonderful, but that's more wonderful. That's the idea behind when it says wonderful, and then you apply that as a modifier to the word counselor. That's what kind of counselor he is. And counselor, again, you think therapist, right? You think somebody who's got the the office and got the couch and got the clipboard, and they're going to give you guidance and advice. Counselor in the Old Testament, a counselor was used in a variety of ways. One of the major ways that it was used was when a king... A wise king, or any king, but in this case, a wise king was going to make proclamation, was going to give counsel to his subjects. He was going to say, this is how our kingdom is going to run, and it's going to run in peace, and it's going to run in prosperity, and it's going to be a great thing. This is my counsel to you. In other words, I have a plan. I'm going to care for us. I'm going to rule well, and as I rule and as you follow, this is the counsel. And that was a counselor. Another way that it was used with, was with uh, regard to a military strategist. And the kings would have these people who would come in and they were their military leaders and strategists and they knew battle tactics and they researched the enemies and knew the tendencies of the other side and knew battle techniques. And they would provide strategies for this is how we're going to get out of this siege or this is how we're going to win this victory. The other side is much greater than us, and this is how we're gonna, going to prosper. And that was giving counsel, okay? 
So council has the idea of having a plan, enacting a plan, rulership, all of those things. And what it comes down to is this, is when, when he's talking about a counselor, he's talking about how, someone who has knowledge, someone who has a plan that can be followed and that can be trusted, right? When Isaiah prophesies and he uses the words wonderful counselor, the people that he was talking to would have heard something that may be very different than what you hear and see when you pick up your coffee mug and it has this verse on it, Right? That wonderful counselor, again, was someone who had a plan that could be followed and that could be trusted. And when he used the modifier wonderful, this was miraculous. This was supernatural. And so the expectation that they had was of someone who would have a miraculous and truly wonderful and powerful plan. And I want to say this by by way of maybe just a small, short excursus is this. That it's a badly mistaken Christology to see Jesus as merely my therapist. Say that again. It's a badly mistaken Christology, right? That's the doctrine of Jesus. When I just see Jesus as my therapist, he's there to listen to my feelings. He's there to make me feel better. He's there to give me some advice that maybe I'll take it or maybe I won't. Church, there are people There are Christians, there are Christian books, blogs, podcasts, all of those things who are teaching that Jesus is essentially your therapist. He's there to make your life better, make you feel things that you want to feel and not feel things that you don't want to feel. That he's there to give you advice that you can take if you want and leave it if you don't, right? People love Jesus as a therapist. They'll read the Sermon on the Mount and pick out the things that they like and leave the other things. Usually it's like, don't judge people and love everybody and things like that, right? And leave out the rest of it. They'll quote things like the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And and we'll take that one, and that sounds pretty good. But Jesus is not just our therapist. Being the wonderful counselor means that he's much, much more than that. I read this this week, and I, I think it's helpful. It said this, when the people heard wonderful counselor, they understood that through this son, through this child that Isaiah talked about, that God was going to be at work to demonstrate his extraordinary wisdom and to plan wonderful and miraculous things. That through the child that would be given, God was going to be at work through that child to plan and to do wonderful, extraordinary, miraculous things. Does that sound a little bit like the plan we celebrate at Christmas? Right? Jesus could have showed up in Rome on a horse with a sword and an army and just taken over. Do you know there were lots of other, quote, messiahs in that day? You should read that history. That's some interesting stuff. Lots of guys would show up with a little army and a sword, and they were going to get after it, and they were going to be the messiah figure, and they would come in, and what inevitably happened? Yeah, the Roman army said, no, not today. Right? They hung him on a cross. Yeah. Jesus could have come in like that, but God had a better plan. Again, I like what the song said. God had a better story. God was writing a better story than all that. Have you ever received bad counsel? Have you ever had somebody like, here's what you really should do, right? You should invest all your money in this, <laughs> right? Here's what you should really do. Have you ever had somebody give you a bad plan? 
Yeah, because even the best counsel and even the best plans come from people, right? Like you can come to my office, Pastor Lauren's office, you can go to someone who has a PhD in counseling, and we're just people. So even the best intentioned counsel, the best intentioned plans can go wrong and go sideways because we're just people. But I can guarantee, I can stand here today and guarantee you this, you've never received bad counsel from Jesus. You have never received a bad plan from Jesus. That when God gave us his word, he gave us his plan. When God showed us, especially as we open to the New Testament, we read the Gospels, which is the story of of Jesus' life. And it is the record of Jesus' teaching that that's a perfect plan. You can follow that and you're going to be okay. Starting with the gospel of Jesus, that Jesus came not just to be in a manger, but ultimately to die on a cross in our place for our sins, right? And that's the plan. And we can, we can read the gospels and we can read the book of Acts and see how that then carried forth throughout the known world at the time. And then we can read the letters, those New Testament letters, and see how, as the church formed, that it was organized and how, again, the wisdom of God played out. And so one of the things that we can then do is this. So say it like this, that Isaiah prophesied of the Messiah. And so what, what Isaiah saw about what we say about Jesus, what Isaiah saw, he saw like in black and white TV. How many of you remember black and white TV? Come on, let's get them hands up. Let's be proud. You guys turn around and look. You see those people? Those are your elders. It's good. Yeah, there you go. I barely remember it, but that's because we were poor, so, <laughs> right? But Isaiah saw, like, in black and white. Isaiah didn't know, again, Isaiah didn't know the name Jesus, right? Isaiah didn't, didn't understand everything about what would happen that we celebrate at the nativity. Because Isaiah was speaking of something that was yet to come, hundreds of years later. But what Isaiah saw in black and white, we now see and understand in in full color because we have the New Testament record. Because Jesus did come, he showed up, and he fulfilled all those prophecies, and he did all the things that, that the Scripture said that he would do. And now we can look back, and we can see that in full color. So what we can then do is we can take Isaiah's prophecy of a wonderful counselor, and we can go to the New Testament and see how Jesus fulfilled that, right? And I'll show you a few of those ways. I want to give you a couple of real specific ones today, and I'll put them on the screen. And again, these are bonus verses, right? Your, your standard verse was one verse for four weeks, and now i got about 100 other verses. Okay, not that many. I've got a couple passages that I want us to see. And I want us to see what it says about Jesus and God's wisdom, the wisdom of God. Colossians 2.3 says, and that's, this isn't on the screen, I'm just remembering this, but Colossians 2.3 says that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of God's, I think it says, I know it says his wisdom and I think it says his knowledge. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of the wisdom and knowledge of God. It means that Jesus possesses all these things. So let's look at what a couple of scripture says. I'll give you some points for those of you who like to write things down. Jesus demonstrated the absolute wisdom of God. So as the wonderful counselor, Jesus came, he demonstrated in his earthly life and his ministry, the absolute wisdom of God. The verses that you see there are important because those are the verses that follow directly after what we celebrate at Christmas. Just after Luke chapter 2 tells us all that fun stuff that you hear in the Charlie Brown story, you know that, right? Yeah, that one. Okay, now you're with me. 
This is what comes after that. And verse 40 says that the child, Jesus, grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And that's important because it shows us a few things about how Jesus grew. And it shows us a little bit about how God, how, uh, God was with him. And then in verse 47, verse 47, you remember that I think the only story that we have of Jesus as like a preteen or, or before, really before his earthly ministry begins is this story where his parents are in a caravan and they're looking around like you are with, like at Walmart sometimes with your young kids, right? Like, where'd they go? I don't know. They were here just a minute ago, right? And they find out a couple days later that <laughs> they go back. Mary finds him in the temple, and he's teaching the teachers. And verse 47 says this, All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. You know how old he was at that time? Twelve. It's a 12-year-old kid, right? It means 12-year-olds can say smart things. That gives you hope for some of your teenagers. All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and at his answers, showing that he had, again, even as a child, he was, had developed and was developing this supernatural understanding. Luke 2.52, Jesus increased in wisdom, right, mentally. He increased in stature, like he physically grew, and he grew in favor with God and with people. And I didn't put all of these on the screen, um, but you can walk through the life of Jesus and you can see all of that stuff that I was talking about in Isaiah about like supernatural and miraculous and truly wonderful as it pertains to the teaching of Jesus, the things that he had to say and the counsel and the plans that he had. Do you guys remember Jesus' most famous sermon, Sermon on the Mount? Jesus teaches Matthew 5, 6, and 7, his most famous sermon. He gets done... And, he, and the people there said something much different than you all say every week. Some of you are so nice, you're like, that was really good, good game. Some of you are like, well, it's about time, right? You know what they said about Jesus? It says that the crowds were astonished at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes and Pharisees. The, the rabbinic teaching in that day was like, you quote me and I'll quote you and we'll quote each other. We just quote a lot of things and then it makes us look smart. And Jesus put away all the quotes, and he just spoke of his own authority. And people were blown away by it. All of that shows us that Jesus demonstrated the absolute wisdom of God. I'm going to give you two more, but I see a little bit of glaze happening, and so I want to say this, okay? These next two passages are like a little bit heavier passages. I'm going to give you two things, and then after we get done with that, we're going to talk about why that actually matters, okay? So I will, I'll give you the so what. But I need you to see that Jesus actually is who we're talking about before we can go like 21st century American and like just give me something to do and apply it. Okay? You ready for another one? Okay, two of you are. Good. Jesus embodies the absolute wisdom of God. Embodies it. Like the, the, he not only de demonstrated it, but it's actually within him. Look what 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says. And if you're reading the English Standard, it says Christ, th this isn't scripture, Right, But that little part up there in italics, that would be like your, uh, the title that the publishers put there. Christ, the wisdom and power of God. This is this. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I'll stop there real quick and say this. Did you know that there are a lot of people that would say about the things that I talk about on Sunday mornings, they would say that's foolishness. Now, I know some of those people who go to church here, right? No, I'm just kidding. 
But there would be a lot of people who would say, like, man, that's crazy. Jesus, like, is God, and he's forever, and he came, and he was in a manger, and then he died. That's weird, and it's for our sins. They say, that's foolish. That's crazy, right? The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. To us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And here's what's really cool. Is they're talking about there's two kinds of wisdom, right? There's worldly wisdom, and then there's Bible wisdom. There's worldly wisdom, and then the kind of wisdom that Jesus embodied. And those things don't look at all alike. The scribe and the debater of the age and those people were the ones that everybody went to in that day for wisdom. He says, Jesus looks a lot different from that. And then he says this, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we, have, what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach what? Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, and that's the important phrase in bold, Christ the power of God, and the wisdom of God. That God has a plan. That plan doesn't make sense to a lot of people. That plan isn't what most people would consider a good plan. But God has a plan, and his name is Jesus. God has a plan, and that plan started to be unraveled and, and, and fulfilled at the manger in the first advent. Jesus, as wonderful counselor, means that that's God's plan and that Jesus embodies the wisdom of God. I'll give you one more, is that Jesus reveals the absolute wisdom of God. And the Apostle Paul, as he's writing to this, the Ephesians here, in Ephesians chapter 1, he's like, I'm going to pray for you guys about some really important things. And as I read this, I just want you to, to notice and, and dig in on and, and notice the... Uh, the things that have to do with knowledge and revelation and like understanding things. He says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, your love to all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? That's the first part of it. And Paul is praying. He's like, I want you guys to know some things. I want things to be revealed to you. I want you to understand like, where your hope comes from. And then he goes on and he says this. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And then he goes on and the rest of that. And Paul is like a, any good preacher. Did you know that? Like Paul is like a good preacher. He gets a, a thought and he just runs with it. And sometimes he's like running around the auditorium with it. He's like, and people are like, where is that going? So when I'm talking and you're like, where is he going with that? I'm just following Paul's example, you guys, right? But he does that here because he starts talking about Jesus and then he just gets all excited. He's like, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but the one to come. He put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who does what? Fills all 
in all. That like through Jesus, the absolute wisdom of God is not only embodied and demonstrated, but it's actually revealed. Like we can know the things that we know through Jesus. We can know about the plan of God through Jesus as the wonderful counselor. So here are the implications of all of that, okay? There were like real specific implications. Number one is this. Jesus, as the wonderful counselor, is God's plan for the hope of the world. There's no plan B. There's no like, if this doesn't work out, then maybe we'll try this other thing, right? That Jesus is God's, as the wonderful counselor, somebody has a plan that you can trust and that you can hold on to and that you can follow. And his name is Jesus. And so when we celebrate the, the first advent, right? And I love what we've got going on over here, okay? Because we're at the manger where we celebrate the first advent. That's a really important thing. It's called the incarnation of Christ. We've got the cross, the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ in our place for our sins. And it didn't end at the cross, right? There was the resurrection and we celebrated Easter. And I don't know if you can see it, but there's a little crown right here signifying that Jesus now does rule and reign and that he will ultimately, finally rule and reign all things. Like that's the wisdom of God in Jesus. One of the implications of understanding Jesus as your wonderful counselor is that he is the plan that can be trusted. He is the plan that can be followed. Another implication is this, that as the wonderful counselor, he has plans for you. He has counsel for you. He has teaching that can be trusted. For some of you, I get it. I get to listen to stories. I heard one this morning from someone I haven't met before this morning. And it was a, it was a sad, it was a tough story. But what I know is that as wonderful counselor, like Jesus has counsel for you. Some of you need the counsel of Jesus. The counsel of Jesus is found in his word. You can talk to me, you can talk to, to someone else, and if we open God's Word and give you Scripture and help you understand that, like that's counsel from God's Word. If you're here today and you're struggling, you're like, Christmas is a tough time. I've lost someone. I have a difficult time. Whatever it is, like maybe that's for, for you today. Say, say, Jesus has wonderful counsel for you. And here's the great news. You don't even have to watch Dr. Phil, right? And I say that like kind of in jest, but here's what's, here's what's a struggle for me as a pastor. I have had countless conversations over 20 plus years of ministry with people who are like, hey, this stuff right here is really good. This stuff is really good for like my spiritual life. But like my normal life, and I, I need something that works. I've actually had people say that, Right? Like for my spiritual life and, you know, the Jesus thing and Sunday in church, yeah, Bible, hook me up, give me some Jesus. Like I need something for parenting. I need something for my marriage. I need something to help me fix my money problems, right? I need, I need something that works. I'm here to tell you that what you need is the wonderful counselor, right? And his plan might not be the plan you want because his plan in the manger was not the plan that his people were looking for. That's why they all missed it and crucified him, right? Like at the end of the day, Jesus has wonderful counsel. And here's the third one that I'll end with is this. That as I read this and I study this and I think about this and I understand this stuff, and the more that I dig in on this, that 
as I experience Jesus as the wonderful counselor, that should create wonder in me. Like if all I'm doing is reading it and studying it and oh wow, look at those cool prophecies in the Old Testament and now they're fulfilled in the New Testament and i got a lot more knowledge. That's not all there is to it. If all I want is Jesus to sit and listen to my problems and offer me some nice advice, I'm missing the point. Wonderful things should create a sense of wonder. Okay, I don't know how good your Christmas decorations are. I don't know how great your Christmas dinner is going to be. But what I do know is that truly wonderful things should create a sense of wonder within my heart and in my soul. I'm here to tell you guys, that's where I struggle at Christmas. Right? There's the hurry, there's the worry, there's the busy, there's more to do. We got this leadership conference that we're taking like 30 teenagers to, and I got designated to do that. Yay. Woohoo. Right? And I get to, I mean, I'm excited. I get to preach there to like 400 kids at this big conference. And it's heavy, and it's a lot of work in the midst of all the rest of the Christmas stuff. And I got a Christmas shop the week before Christmas, the day before Christmas, whatever. Right? There's all the things. And what can happen is all of that Christmas busy can press in and I can lose my sense of wonder. What I don't want to do this morning is give you something else to do at Christmas. What I would love to do is invite you to experience some of the wonder of the wonderful counselor. You can do that in the middle of traffic, you can do that at the mall when it's crazy. You can do that when you're baking Christmas cookies, when you're hanging out with those family members that you see at Christmas and and Thanksgiving, right? You can experience the wonder of the wonderful counselor. And I just want to invite us into that today by showing him off a little bit and then saying, like, let's remember that as we go throughout our Christmas season. And again, not to give you something else to do, but what I try to do in the sermon supplement this week is, again, just some questions to help you think through this some more. But there were two things that I read. They're just blogs, really, so they're pretty quick, um, that I read this week, and I linked to those. So if you use the online version, either on the website or on the app of the sermon supplement, you can just click and it'll take you to it. Um, There are some paper copies on the back. You can type in that website there and get them. But those help you think about it. And as we leave here, maybe you spend a little bit of time each night reading or in the mornings reading or reading with your family, right? Let's allow God to, to, to make that sense of wonder well up inside us as we understand the wonderful counselor. Next week, we get to talk about the mighty God. You think we'll be excited about that one? Yeah, I think we will be too. Why don't you stand with me and I'll pray and we'll get out of here and continue to worship the Lord. Father, thank you so much for giving Isaiah these words hundreds of years before you sent your son. Thank you for these specific words and and for the words that we could dig into and understand even more and even better. God, thank you that we, in the midst of the hurry and the worry and the busy and the crazy of Christmas, that we can experience some wonder. God, I just pray that for myself and and for everyone who's gathered here, for those who are watching online, who will watch later, the folks who were here for the first service, God, we just continue to pray that you would awaken us to, to the wow factor, to just the wonder of your son as the wonderful counselor, as your plan, as the one who has the counsel that we need. 
God, I pray that as we experience that wonder, even through this Christmas season, that it would shape and mold and change the way that we live, the way that we act, the way that we think, and that you would just continue um, to guide us. So we thank you for this season. We thank you for what you'll continue to do as you teach us. And God, I just pray blessing over all who are gathered here together today. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys, thank you again so much for being here today. We will see you next week.